Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Extra Buttery Podcast. In our last episode, it was a bit of a quiet week for movie and TV news, but we've done a 180, and coming up on this episode of the show, we've got a full lineup for you, starting off with some discussion about the surprise announcement that Christopher Miller and Phil Lord have been fired as the directors of the Han Solo Star Wars anthology film, so we'll dig a little bit into that. Then we'll take a look at the advanced buzz about some upcoming summer releases, in particular War for the Planet of the Apes and Valyrian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Both of them are big, expensive-looking summer movies, and the reviews are starting to trickle in, so we'll go over those. Then we'll close things out today with two new reviews. First, Baby Driver, which just opened this week. I went to see it last night and was totally blown away. And then Jason will get us up to speed on The Mummy, which he just saw recently. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow. Joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chen. How's it going? Fine. I'm good. How are you? Oh, you, you, sort, of, you sort of changed it up I know, this time. I sort of did. We have to... We, <laughs> we have, we're we going to have to make an, a, an ongoing joke about this. I, I know. I feel like, you know how it's kind of like a courtesy thing to say how you're doing right after you say hello? Yeah, my default answer is always like I'm I'm good, and so I think it's become sort of like second nature and robotic for me to do it. <laughs> like even if I'm not feeling good, my automatic answer is just good. It's just like a reaction now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of muscle memory. Yeah, it's weird. I'll, I'll work on it. Okay, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to be not so boring. Well, hey, I mean, like any good podcast needs uh, some in jokes, so uh, we'll see where this one takes us. But let's move into uh, the first story we're going to look at today, and that's this Christopher Miller, Phil Lord firing from the Han Solo movie. Yes. Um, This started to develop, I think, only a day or two after we posted our last episode, and it's had about a week to a week and a half to kind of get fully explored by all of the the industry or all of the uh, the reporters, you know, on the on the entertainment beat. But how like how up to speed are you on this? Like, have you been tracking this one closely? So like I knew I heard about it. I think it was the day after our podcast, actually. But I kind of had been following the story. I wasn't too interested in the Han Solo solo flick <laughs> uh, to begin with because i wasn't sure what to expect but um i do know that i think they finished like the vast majority of filming like 75 percent of it or something before kathleen kennedy fired mm-hmm. the two um i always thought they were kind of not so much odd but kind of interesting choices for the project though considering that they had made their name with like a lego movie and tonally the han solo movie would have been i think very very different and maybe that's why they got fired, because it, it was too much like the Lego movie or something. Yeah, and there hasn't been like there hasn't been a particular person, like a, a one member of the cast who's really come forward to to kind of put their name to the inside story here. But what's kind of emerged from various unnamed sources is the idea that Phil Lord and Christopher Miller are well known for their improvisation on the set, you know, when they were making 21 Jump Street and 22 Jump Street with Channing Tatum and um, Jonah Hill and Jonah Hill, they would spend a lot of time on the set, you know, multiple hours at a time, just working through jokes, riffing off of things, trying to, to get the best possible line out of a scene. 
And mm-hmm. it sounds like they were doing the same thing here, where they were working with Alden Ehrenreich and probably uh, Woody Harrelson and definitely Donald Glover. And they were just kind of letting the cameras roll and seeing what came out of it. And then the footage that they were showing to the producers, uh, Kathleen Kennedy and Lawrence Kasdan, at the end of the day, apparently Kathleen Kennedy was expecting to see, you know, like, 10 or 12 or or 14 different angles on a particular scene, like a lot of different options that could be tested out in editing. Mm-hmm. But instead, they were only showing off like four or five different angles, but they were showing off a lot of material, a lot of jokes from those different angles. So it gets a little bit technical, you know, at least in the yep. way that these things unravel on set. But it sounds like Kathleen Kennedy and Lawrence Kasdan were worried that the two directors just weren't shooting enough or putting enough variety into the shooting to make the editing process work. And so they they kind of were shown the door. Fair enough. I think this is like another example of Disney being super controlling, mm-hmm. of really having like really demanding their directors and the filmmakers deliver what they want. Mm-hmm. The other thing I can see is that if you remember back to Rogue One, I thought it was a surprisingly serious movie a little too melodramatic sometimes. And I think maybe that's what they wanted to go with for Han Solo. But Han Solo's character lends itself to a lot of like snarky, funny moments. And maybe Phil Lord and Chris Miller went too far in that direction. And Disney was like, no, no, no. Like we're trying to be really serious about building this universe here. We can't have jokes because it's it's not the tone they want. Yeah, they, they were kind of worried that they would get an out-and-out comedy yeah. as opposed to a Star Wars film with maybe an extra little bit of comedy. I always got the feeling that the films were going to be tonally different, or were they always going to be the same? No, I think they, they had a bit of flexibility, but I, I it sounds yeah. like, like Gareth Edwards, when he was shooting Rogue One, even though he was trying darker things and he was, you know, he had endings written that are for particular scenes that were actually darker than what we saw that movie went through a lot of reshoots too exactly but but at least he was he was willing to at least show the producers a whole bunch of different takes a whole bunch of different approaches to a scene to kind of prove that like all right if you don't like this way i've done it here's like a whole bunch more well he is a huge star wars fan so maybe he just didn't want to get fired maybe yeah so and and it's just very different styles of working whereas it sounds like lord and miller they were you know they would set up their cameras and they would just keep working through a scene until they got really funny stuff and that probably worried the the producers a little bit so mm-hmm. it was just different mm-hmm. different styles of working they were really intent on doing it that way it sounds like there was a few more than a few arguments on the set over their their style oh i'm sure and when you have people like donald glover and woody harrelson you know it's some of the jokes can be pretty outrageous right yeah, yeah. So who knows exactly how far they, they, they took certain ideas, but <laughs> now they've brought in Ron Howard to kind of pace things over. And Although, I mean, when when's the last time Ron Howard made a good movie? <laughs> uh, Let, let's ask ourselves that question first. I mean, Rush was all right. It wasn't, it wasn't great. Like, would it have to be like a beautiful mind? Are we going to have to go back like 15 years? Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, for for the last film that was like, that really stood out as being... Uh, and he's, he's what I would call like a, a director's director. Like, he's not... I don't find him very experimental. No, I find him no. just quite good at just about everything. Just, you know, pretty good at putting things together. Pretty good at moving the plot along. He shoots nice things. But there's nothing horribly like... 
well, I wouldn't say horribly, but there's nothing really distinctive about him, about his work. Yeah, I would agree um, with that. Maybe just some like supernatural elements in his movies that kind of pop up here and there. I think he's just there to more steer the ship into a straighter line. Yeah, and just kind of go over the footage that's been collected and see where the gaps are and use the reshoots that were already on the schedule to to make the best out of the, the actor's time and all that. But for anybody feeling bad about Lord and Miller, they don't have to worry because they're on to their next project. Oh, yeah, they're, they're hot shots in the industry right now. Yeah, they're writing an animated Spider-Man movie which will not feature Peter Parker, but Miles Morales, who is the other Spider-Man. He's African-American, isn't he? I think he's African. He's a minority of some sort. Yeah. Or Puerto Rican, maybe? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting, actually, that it's going to be animated, though, don't you think? It's kind of odd, eh? Yeah, like, uh, are they going for a animation style like the TV show in the way that DC does those kind of one-off direct-to-streaming releases? We shall see. I mean, it would be nice to see them to put a... I, I don't know how much money's be, being put behind this release, but it'd be nice to see some some kind of fun animation style, something a little bit more flashy than the, the TV quality stuff. Well, I mean, the TV stuff is pretty outdated, but the TV, the, like the characters and the plot in the original TV series, like in the, ninth, the one from the 90s, that was awesome. I love that show. Yeah. But if you watch it now, yeah. it's super dated, yeah. Like, the animation just doesn't make any sense. Like, you have, like, entire frames just, like, skip, like, 20 frames ahead. Oh, really? I No, I, have, I didn't catch that. Yeah, because the animation is just, like, not smooth. So, like, in one scene where, like, the lizard will be in the left corner, and then, like, in an instant he'll be in, like, the right corner, you don't actually see him moving across the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, but you that, kind of make that connection anyway. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the, it's TV budgets for you, you know, just sometimes they were cranking that stuff out on some pretty intense deadlines. Yeah, they had to, right? Like, yeah, if you read about how they used to do these uh, animation back in the day, it was basically down to the wire for, for yeah. some of them. Yeah, yeah. Moving on to other stuff that's coming up, we have advanced buzz ahead of War for the Planet of the Apes and Valyrian from our favorite Luke Besson. <laughs> yeah, so of the two of these, there's there's a slightly different character to the, the advanced buzz. For War for the Planet of the Apes, which I've been looking forward to for pretty much since the last one came out, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Since the first one, you mean? No, the first one's Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Right, but you've been waiting for this since the first movie, though, right? Because um, the first movie was excellent. The first one was excellent, but but I think I, I think the second one is better. Yes, I agree. The second one's better. But the first one was good too. This and the second one had a had a kind of cliffhanger ending that really, really drove towards this one. Yeah, because I think after the first one they were kind of like they didn't really know if it was going to get a sequel, but after, when they made the second one, they definitely knew there's going to be a third. Yeah. So that was probably the difference. Well, before we go too far, here's a clip from the trailer. We are not savages. Apes fight only to survive. Bad human kill apes. All, all dead now in a long time. Long time. Bad humans. Soldier. It's almost like, you know, these are the Planet of the Apes movies that we really deserve because the the first one, Planet of the Apes from the 60s, still holds up. You can watch that nowadays and still be kind of impressed by what how far they got with the practical apes makeup and Charlton Heston's yeah, performance is just as yeah. like, you know, you're just watching this guy scream and flail and everything. It's it's great. 
Um, and then, of course, the series took a massive drop off in quality the more they came out with like Beneath the Planet of the Apes is like B-movie camp at yeah. its finest. And it just got worse from there. Isn't there like six of them? There was at least four in the original series. And then, of course, Tim Burton tried to reboot it in 2001, I think. And that, OK, that unpopular opinion time. But I like that one. You did? I did. What was your what did you like about it? Well, first of all, Tim Burton's like excellent with prosthetics and like world world building. I didn't mind Mark Wahlberg. I thought, who who is the villain? Oh, uh, always plays a villain. Was that uh, Michael Clark Duncan? No, 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 no. Well, Paul Giamatti was one of the, the orangutan. I think he was an orangutan. But Tim Roth, Tim Roth, he was the villain, right? He was excellent. Like the, the ape captain or something? Or like a general? Yeah, he plays like a general or something. And I, I love the ending too. <laughs> I thought it was Oh, fun. yeah, yeah. The Lincoln Memorial bit. Some people didn't like it, but I thought it was an interesting twist. Did you not like it? Out of the entire movie, I liked the ending the most, just in, but I found... It's not a, like a great film by any means, but I totally enjoyed it. No, but you think about Charlton Heston's performance in the first one, and that's something that's like seared in my brain. Like, I'll never forget it. And meanwhile, I can't really remember anything about Wahlberg's performance in, in the remake. <laughs> well, he kind of plays like your clean cut action hero type, you know, the same kind of roles he's been playing for the past 15 years now. But uh, I thought I remember the biggest difference between the Heston one and the Burton one was that in the Heston one, like the humans were meant to be even more primitive. Yeah, well, they um, Heston is like the only surviving astronaut from the mission and then by the time he lands on the planet again most of the humans can't speak yeah yes there's something like that yeah 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 they've devolved to the point where they're they're more like animals and the apes are more civilized right and i think that was kind of reversed in the burton version wasn't it the humans never reverted evolved i should say no like they were at least able to carry on conversations with each other and they were like intelligent yeah 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 there was a chance at like a rebellion forming but like in the in the first one heston's really the only one who can oppose the apes in any meaningful way i i mean i thought the production value was pretty great actually the one thing that really surprised me about the new planet of the apes trilogy is how good the cgi for the apes are yeah um because in the burton version i was like well you can't can't top practical effects most of the time, right? But I thought the apes in the new trilogy looked fantastic. And that might just be like uh, Andy Serkis's performance. I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot happening there. You know, he puts so much effort into the facial expressions and the body language and, and everything. Yeah, Tim Roth would be like, if you dropped him from the Burton one to this one, the Matt Reeves ones right now, I think he'd still fit in pretty perfectly yeah but the, but the advanced buzz for this third one war for the planet of the apes like i've i've seen people saying that it's one of the most significant blockbusters of the last 10 years that's really good to hear it succeeds on like every level so i i'm trying not to get overhyped because i don't want to go in and then start seeing flaws and then feel disappointed is that you know that can happen right uh but that's a pretty tall order too though right like the best blockbuster in the past 10 years uh well maybe not the best but definitely in the top 10 like well we, we've had quite a few yeah so i mean that even that says something so i'm uh and it, it it apparently like it's emotionally it's also delivering in ways that even dawn of the planet of the apes couldn't because maybe they the you know there's always going to be critiques about the human characters in these these ape movies where they had james franco in the first one 
and Frida Pinto, I think. And then in the second one, it was a completely new family with um, Jason Clark and uh, who played Jason Clark's wife in that one? I can't remember. But anyways, like it was a new cast of human characters. So, you know, they had to build those people up a little bit. And, you know, there was a bit of bit of time spent that way. I mean, one of the biggest things about the Burton one was so much of the focus was on Wahlberg and the humans. And then this one, it's clear like the apes are take center stage. Like it's clear Caesar is the main character and he's on the screen a lot. I have no problem believing that it'll be the best blockbuster of the summer because so far the ones that I think people have expected to be big haven't been as big. And granted, we're not even in July yet, but if you look at it, Pirates hasn't done well, Transformers hasn't done well. Not that really anyone expected them to do well, but... They're underperforming financially too, which which not, not to like bomb level, like it's not like they're going to be a loss for the studios in any capacity, but yeah, the, uh, they're, not, they're not delivering the goods. But hopefully they stop making the movies. Um, the other one is Valerian, which I'm really, really skeptical about because... Yeah, I know. Um, I'm not a huge Luc Besson fan. Um, I think Dane DeHaan's had a couple interesting choices in his career, and... Kara Delevingne, I don't know if she can act at all. So yeah, and I'm—I I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I'm a, an apologist for this movie because I, I know that I've come out—I've come out to defend. You didn't see Jupiter ascending, so yes. Well, I mean, I saw Jupiter <laughs> ascending at the same level of of curiosity as I'm going to see Valerian, but right. But uh, it's like a sci-fi kind of like CGI heavy kind of exploration. Yeah, kind definitely. Of yeah, there's there's some common common DNA there, but I think where Valerian has some potential is in connecting up to the world that we kind of got a taste of in The Fifth Element, which was probably Luc Besson's most widely regarded uh, movie of this type. But it took um, years to build that following, too. And it was the, it was a lot of it was done through home video and rewatching it and stuff. So that, yeah, that, that definitely took some time to build up that, that goodwill. So this one, it doesn't sound like this is like a direct sequel or anything, but it may connect up at least in, in the larger universe. Just to get a taste of Valerian, here's a clip from the trailer. Welcome to Alpha. The city of a thousand planets. Where for hundreds of years, every species has shared their knowledge and their intelligence with each other. It's paradise. The advanced buzz that we're seeing suggests that like visually it's apparently fantastic like mm-hmm. if you have any taste for these kind of big space opera type sci-fis with lots of different races and locations and everything you can get you can get sucked in pretty easily and apparently the the 3D treatment is really good too it's one of those rare 3D movies that where the 3D is actually enhancing the experience but as is often the case with movies of this type the story tends to be feel a little bit more generic especially in the latter half apparently yeah are you familiar with the story like it's based on a graphic novel it's based based on a graphic novel all i can really suss out is just what the trailer suggests which is that like dane dehan and cara delavine play some sort of interstellar police officers and they get put on a case which leads them all across the the universe and there's probably some villain is there a reason why they're so young the actors themselves aren't super young no but they look very young and i'm just wondering like they just seem a little young to be cops you know some sort of like intergalactic security force is just like dude like aren't you like 16 (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> like, what do you know? Maybe they're like, uh, who knows? Like, this this seems to be one of those sci-fi worlds where there's all sorts of weird possibilities. Like, maybe they're actually, like, hundreds of years old, but they're, like, elves or something, and they don't age. Yeah, it has, like, almost, like, an Ender's Game kind of vibe to it. It does, yeah, especially with the, the armor that they, the yeah. main characters wear. And, yeah. yeah, and, like, in a lot of space exploration movies, it's always, like, middle-aged or older, more experienced actors and characters. Mm. right like even in the martian like any of the films in the past like blade runner sci-fi and all that stuff interstellar um the cast is skews towards more adult mature adult not right. like 20 something right. year olds i know that dane dehan's like 30 or something like that but he looks super young right yeah that's just the way he looks um yeah <laughs> but i mean this the the one thing that i'm that i'm kind of encouraged by with the the advanced buzz here is just the the fact that you don't. You, we haven't seen anybody saying that it's like Jupiter sending levels of cheesiness yet. Like it's there's not the script isn't so bad that bar is pretty low though, Rob. <laughs> the bar is low, but like people were seeing Jupiter ascending and they were essentially. And I echoed this too in my review. I was like, you know, the production design looks great. You know, you 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 love like watching these intricate looking ships glide past the surface of Jupiter and stuff. Like that's fine, <laughs> but. The, the script was just so god-awful in Jupiter Sending that you could barely even enjoy the cool visuals. So it sounds like here, you know, the script isn't nearly as bad. So it may not still be a, a total home run, but uh, you won't be like, you won't be poking fun at Dane DeHaan or Carla Delevingne to the same way that we were making fun of Eddie Redmayne or Channing Tatum or... Fair enough. Did you like The Fifth Element? I haven't seen it in ages, but I remember distinctly not liking it i might have been just too young but i can't say i'm a fan i enjoyed it for so like so i could get the context of some of those clips that always get played when people are right talking about uh bruce willis's past work or classic sci-fis or from the 90s or things like that so i appreciated getting the full package there but I can't say it's something that I'm gonna. I, I would run out to and and watch over and over again. Um, Gary Oldman's performance is pretty intense. Well, he's good in everything, though. No, but he's just like he's so kooky. Like he uh, out of every. Okay, um, going on a tangent there. Okay, I'm um, speaking of Gary Oldman and excellent actors. How have we not talked about Daniel Day Lewis's decision to retire? Oh yeah. Okay. Okay, like he's he's kind of done this before in the past, where he's kind of like I'm done with acting. Yeah, and he disappears to Italy and becomes a, a cobbler or something. Yeah, and so like now apparently he wants to be like a fashion designer or a clothes maker. Like yeah, but did he go on record and say that? because that just sounds like the description of his character from the movie. Right. And I think he he started doing it so much, he just, like, fell in love with it or something. Oh, my God. Do you think he's, like, for real? Do you think he's actually... I've... I have no idea. That man is is probably one of the most inscrutable actors who's... He cares so much about his craft, it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I don't even know if he knows what's going on in his head. <laughs> no, like, right? Yeah. If, like, where, where, the, where his character ends and where real life begins. And of course, you know, that's kind of the key to his success. He, he's, <laughs> um, when, he's in, when he's into a character, he's in there, so... Who knows? He could be could have lost his mind and believes he's the character again, um, or it could be totally legit. And he's like, you know, he's looking around, thinking to himself, eh, "I can take ten years off and, you know, wait until the absolute perfect role comes along again." 
Well, in 10 years, won't he be like 70 or 80 years old now? Yeah, but he's Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, he can do whatever he wants at this point. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, I think the problem is that he does whatever he wants, so we don't get more Daniel Day-Lewis movies out of him. He's not one to really uh, analyze his past career or anything in interviews. Like, he doesn't really... Not to say that he hates doing press, because I think he he has to do press for this new Paul Thomas Anderson movie that he's is going to be his last role, allegedly. He'll at least talk to the the, the critics and the reporters about it, but uh, yeah, whether whether he actually gives us any nuggets about what he's going to do next, I don't know. Maybe he's angling for his uh, Oscar award right now. Oh, you think by teasing people this far out, he's going to lock it in before the, the <laughs> festival season even starts? Yeah, he's by teasing people that this is going to be his final performance, people are going to be like, oh, no, well, we have to give him like a, send, a proper send off. So we might as well give him the award. But I mean, so far, like we're six months into 2017. I, I, I don't feel like there's a male actor frontrunner so far. No, maybe but Hugh I, Jackman. Maybe Hugh Jackman but, for I Logan, mean, but uh Yeah, maybe. But so far no one's really The festival season is going to open up in a in a way that, you know, there's there's movies out there that I don't think we've even heard about yet that that could be contenders. Yeah, of course, of course. Yes. I mean, we're not in Oscar bait season yet. But I feel like Daniel Day-Lewis may be campaigning early this year. <laughs> <laughs> but does he really strike you as the kind of guy who cares about awards? Like, like the kind of guy who would be that long-term in his thinking or even... I don't... I can't say I if he cares or not about the award. I think on some level he must. I think everyone must because it's voted on by your peers. So that means something. Right. But I don't know if he's kind of like an Anne Hathaway type where she'll like really do media blitzes all the time and kind of try and make like solidify her case i think daniel day lewis isn't that aggressive but i think a part of him probably does want to win i think everyone wants to win at some point when when you're nominated like yeah you may not think you're gonna win but it'd be really cool if you win right well if you're right i think it would be a kind of a masterful stroke on his part because i don't think <laughs> he's been playing us all i swear he's that good i don't think i don't think anybody is 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 i mean obviously people are excited for him to be in this movie because it's a paul thomas anderson movie and uh, and all that one of my favorites so changing streams into something completely different back to the whole superhero blockbuster realm again it's Dark Phoenix, which looks like it it has it's begun production. They've got Sophie Turner and crew, Ty Sheridan. Yeah, Sophie Turner and everybody. So they they're all playing the But all the old guys are back too. Well, a few of them, but nobody like we saw at the end of Days of Future Past, like the original But the first class people. Yeah, first class people. So because we're squarely in that timeline now. Even though they said they were done. Yeah, I don't know. X X Men is is something that kind of it keeps on going no matter what. <laughs> because it makes money. Yeah. I'm not complaining. I really like X-Men. So um, some of the movies aren't great, but I, I still really like that universe. I think there are a lot of things they can do. It's just unfortunate that they're already rehashing story that was done in X-Men 3. I think this one will be done better, but I'm not convinced that it will be any better than Apocalypse either. Because don't you worry that they're rushing into the whole Dark Phoenix thing? I mean, we barely even had time to get to know Sophie Turner's version of Jean Grey. Well, I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons why, one of my gripes about Apocalypse is that even though there seemed to be a lot of character development, the characters still seem very malleable. Mm. Like they're not very, you still don't know them very well. 
Um, there was a deleted scene where all of them go to the mall. And yeah, I wish I saw that, that I kept that scene. Yeah. Because it at least showed a different side to their story. But you're right. I mean, the Dark Phoenix thing, like, it's pretty sudden to jump into. But maybe they can flush it out in the two hours. Because I don't think... Like, when X-Men 2 happened, they only teased Dark Phoenix at the end. At the very, very, very end. And then X-Men 3 moved along pretty fast. And there were a bunch of other subplots that kind of dragged the whole thing down. So maybe Dark Phoenix will be a pretty straightforward story. It's also one of the most interesting stories. And I think the ethics and I think the moral compass for of Professor Xavier is very interesting thing to explore. How he like keeps Jean Grey in basically a playpen where he controls how much power she can access and all that. But that's just me nerding out about X-Men. It does pose some some interesting questions because the last time around, there was the relationship between Hugh Jackman's Wolverine and Jean Grey and how, you know, he ultimately has to make the decision to, to kill her, to stop the Dark Phoenix from destroying the world, essentially. So... This time around, you know, now that Hugh Jackman has bowed out of the the X-Men movies with Logan, um, it kind of falls to a different type of relationship between Jean Grey and Professor X. That's a different way to frame it, I suppose. And I'm, I'm not familiar with the original comics, so I don't know how, how that compares. Simon Kinberg is the director, and he was one of the, like, the original X-Men crew. Like, he had written some of the previous movies from way back then. Does he have many directing credits? I'm not super familiar with this stuff. No, that's the thing, no. It's his first feature film. Oh, okay. Hmm. So it'll be interesting. That can be a tall order for certain people, you know, getting handed. But then again, you know, a lot of these, uh, by this point, a lot of these superhero movies, they have such a brain trust behind them that you know, the auteurship of the director isn't isn't quite the same factor as it, as it might be in, in another thing. And he's got a great cast. Jessica Chastain's joined. Yeah, she's playing a, a villain, isn't she? Or sh- has she signed on officially? Yeah, I believe she did. Yeah, she has. Okay, but I mean, the cast is strong. You can't really go wrong. Anytime you have Fassbender and J-Law, it's pretty good. But you just don't want them to be, I think, the central characters. Yeah. Um, Because you need to decide which characters you want to focus on. You can't give everyone the same amount of screen time. Um, It's just the way it works. It's just you can't. There's not enough time. Arguably, Fassbender and J-Law had too much screen time in the last one. So I think if if Kinberg and the the story group uh, behind this one, if they want to do something a little bit more bold and maybe more in service of the story, then they should consider turning Mystique and Magneto into more of like a Wolverine in first class kind of situation where they they don't really have a that much of an active role in the plot, but they pop up in a cameo or two here or there uh, just for a quick like sting. Considering it's called Dark Phoenix, Sophie Turner is going to have a lot of screen time because it's gonna the story is going to revolve around her. Right. And I think the jury's still out on her because I don't think she's ever been the best character or best actress in Game of Thrones. Ooh, you're, you're going to uh, set off a few Game of Thrones uh, fangirls. She's not the best. She's n- clearly not the best. I don't know. I've heard, I've heard some pretty impassioned defenses of her on uh, the most recent season. Like her character or her performance? Her performance. There, there's a lot of fanboys and fangirls out there. This upcoming season will be really telling, but she's never struck me as someone who's very, who can carry an episode or a movie. Hmm. All right. Yeah, that's something to keep your eye on. That brings us along to uh, to the next little bit that we were just going to touch on before we get into the new reviews that we've got. And it's just a little tidbit on the new project that the team behind Nightcrawler has sold to Netflix. And at this point, I don't believe 
we know very much about this movie at all. Like we don't have a title or even a, a premise as far as I know. But if you were a fan at all of Nightcrawler from 2014 with Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo and Riz Ahmed, then you might be intrigued by this because Gyllenhaal is reteaming with Russo and Dan Gilroy, uh, who wrote and directed Nightcrawler, and they've got something in the works for uh, for Netflix. So that's uh, that's kind of intriguing. He's proved. Well, did they say how much Netflix bought it for? I I didn't see a figure, but um, because it's not a big budget film either. Are we thinking like maybe fifteen million or something in that neighborhood? I have no idea. I just I know it's not going to be a big budget movie. So I mean that suggests that there probably won't be like a major effects kind of component. Like it could be more like. Well, neither did Nightcrawler. It doesn't mean it won't be good or anything. No, I just no. Imagine it'll be similar in in structure and tone, where it's like a very self-contained story where it doesn't sprawl out in like ten different directions. Yeah, and they won't be relying on like big action set pieces or anything. So no, and I think. Jake Gyllenhaal is the type of actor who can be on the screen for a full hour and you'll not, you'll never get sick of him. <laughs> yeah. You know, like he's, he's got good acting chops too. And Rene Russo kind of had like a little resurgence with Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, we'll have to see, but this is definitely intriguing because Netflix has so far invested a lot of money into providing original content. Yeah. But they're only just recently making announcements about uh, canceling some of their original series. Yeah. And it's, you know, you're going to hit and miss a couple times on these things. It's just, you know, you, you can't be perfect. Yeah. But Netflix needs to hit pretty big on some of these ones you know to really make back what they put in yeah and we still don't they're like they never talk about performance in terms of audience numbers that's like a, one of the cardinal rules so it can be really hard to i mean well, you can kind of you get a sense of how well something's doing from you know how how people how much people are talking say, about it and like whether you're the average people you run into at the office or friends of yours whether they've seen it but that you'll never get the hard and fast numbers like you would with a box office reports and it's also because i think there's so many different metrics now and some metrics are yep. better than others so it's pretty tough to say so because netflix is a public company maybe they'll be more transparent about what they deem as viewers because i mean once in a while you hear some crazy stat about how like one in three people on netflix watch an adam sandler movie mm. and i'm like where the fuck do you find these people <laughs> i don't know a single person who has a netflix yeah, neither, subscription who watches adam sandler not, like neither really do late. i i mean is it just when people are drunk and they can't remember it when they go to take the yeah, survey like, or <laughs> like is adam sandler some sort of like international superstar outside of north america that i just had like no clue about <laughs> like you yeah, know what i mean yeah like some of these numbers they come out with i'm like really seriously like i i just it doesn't pass a smell yeah, test sometimes. But, I, but it, they, they gave him this great... But they keep making they them. They gave him so this like, great deal. It was like eight or nine movies. And they were just like, no questions asked. Yeah. Here you go. Take all the money you need. You know, we'll... Uh, and I was, you know, <laughs> anybody who, who has any kind of taste would would hope that, that this wasn't the case. But but yeah, it's they, they must have had a reason to do it. Anyway, moving on to better topics. You saw Baby Driver. I did. And you were really excited... I know you really liked it because you texted me right after the movie. <laughs> and that's when I usually know you're pretty pumped about something. I, I was kind of fired up. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about it. And the I, it might be with, with Edgar Wright's movies, uh, I think part of my love for his movies is just because I work 
you know, part part of my job is as a video editor. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a part of his style that's very dependent on the rhythm of his editing, the way he uh, will take like a mundane object, like a person's hand on a doorknob, or the, these like close up shots of things that shouldn't matter, and the way the way he assembles them together, it immediately it just builds so much extra tension and interest. And he did it throughout Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz. Mm-hmm. And the world's end, and all, and Scott Pilgrim too. But but Scott Pilgrim also had the added benefit of having a more comic booky supernatural flavor to it. So in Baby Driver, he's he's back at it again. He's he's got this heist thriller with Ansel Elgort as a getaway driver for a mob boss played by Kevin Spacey, and this kid played by Elgort, he has tinnitus so he's got this humming in his ear from a accident when he was a kid and he plays music constantly from a collection of ipods that he keeps on him like ipod classics uh, with with extra high capacity and he uses those tracks to get in the groove and time his getaway driving so that he's always one step ahead of the cops and uh, he is the the go-to guy for kevin spacey and kevin spacey is bringing in all these different criminals for job after job but the one constant is Baby, who's the that's the code name that Ansel Elgort's character goes by. And here's a quick clip from Baby Driver where Baby, played by Ansel Elgort, is meeting Deborah, played by Lily James, for the first time. So you're just starting your day, or did you just get off? Oh, I don't know if I ever get off. They call, I go, you know. So what is it you do? I'm a driver. Oh, like a, like a chauffeur? You drive around important people. I guess I do. Anyone I'd know? I hope not. Well, aren't you mysterious? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe? <laughs> so when was the last time you hit the road just for fun? Yesterday. Oh, I'm jealous. Sometimes all I want to do is head west on 20 in a car I can't afford with a plan I don't have. Just me, my music, and the road. I'd like that, too. So... Yeah, it is just, you know, if you've seen it, uh, an Edgar Wright film in the past, you you get a sense of what to expect. But I don't know, there's something about the, there's no wasted shots. Everything kind of just locks together. The soundtrack is probably one of the best from any movie I've seen this year. Well, Guillermo del Toro, I think, was like all over it. I think he said he loved it. Yeah, he, he had some great things to say about it. Uh, there was one thing where like uh, Edgar Wright was following the conversation. He was like, "Can I have that as the pull quote on the poster?" And it was something about <laughs> it was something about like uh, film noir filtered through crack smoke or something. It was it was a very Del Toro kind of quote. And I was right. I was right there with him. I was like, "Yes, this is uh, I don't know. It's there. There's just this energy about the movie that." We don't see very often, and it's it's made all the better by being a totally original story set in Atlanta. You know, it's they're they're, they're putting the city on display. They're not trying to make it look like New York or Los Angeles. There's this kind of like this kinetic feeling to it, uh, this sense that there's so much more in there. And if the more times you watch it, the more cool little references and things that you'll be able to draw out. Is it kind of like Scott Pilgrim? I would say it's less idiosyncratic. Then Scott Pilgrim, there's less kind of weird character moments, and some people might argue that it's there's less of a comedy mm-hmm. side to it. You know, there's more of these action set pieces surrounding the the car chases and the the heist stuff. It's also maybe a little bit more violent than than your average Edgar Wright one. 
where he he tended to use violence for comedic ends in the past, but now it's it's got more of a real world implication. But uh, the other thing I liked is he's working in a genre that is pretty well established. You know, by this point, you know, if a savvy moviegoer can watch one of these movies and maybe by like halfway through, they can probably figure out roughly where all the characters are going to end up, like which ones are going to die, which ones are going to survive. But this time around, even though that's still true of Baby Driver, like you can still kind of figure it out, you can't quite predict when or how it's going to happen. And there's still a few surprises in there, the way things play out the way characters either leave the picture or survive it is still throws you for a loop at certain times. You're like, Oh, okay. I didn't totally, I didn't think he was going to do it that way. Um, so that was kind of cool. So this is a movie where a sequel is likely. I actually, I don't know. I think they could do a sequel if they wanted to, but I don't get the sense that Wright. I think Wright would only do one if, like everybody on the production really wanted it to happen. And if the, if he got like a really killer idea for a story, but it, it exists on its own. Like it can, it doesn't have a, a mate, like a really strong call out for a sequel at the end. Right. Okay. But I mean, if it does well, I just, I think studios are just going to want to. Uh, maybe, but I mean, he, uh, he's, he's always exercised a lot more creative control over these types of movies. Like he, he didn't necessarily have to make a sequel to Hot Fuzz. He was kind of like coaxed into it, it felt like. So. Right. But that was part of his like trilogy too, right? Yeah. But he even admitted that the, that the idea of those movies being a trilogy was a bit of a joke. Mm, uh, okay. Like ref- even referring to them as the. The Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy, like the idea that there's... I was going to say it's based on an ice cream cone. Yeah, so that was, uh, <laughs> apparently that that was more born out of like a fan picking up on the fact that the same brands of ice cream cone were eaten in Shaun of the Dead and, and Hot Fuzz. And so he, they didn't necessarily have, like he didn't, Edgar Wright admitted that he didn't really have to, but just it just kind of happened organically from working with Simon Pegg and, and Nick Frost uh, on, a, on a third one. They were like, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, Baby Driver, you might see it be a sequel, but I I don't get the sense that the studio is going to really pressure him to make one unless he, he really wants to. Right, right. Okay. I was kind of... It's good that you say that because I was kind of skeptical at first um, because Edgar Wright has a very unique way of editing. Like, what's the shot where he does where... Like, it's a full glass of beer, and then... Oh, and then he cuts... Yeah, that's like a snap cut. A snap cut, yeah, yeah. So, that kind of gets grading sometimes. That's one of the reasons why I didn't like... Was it called This Is The End? No, that's not... Oh, uh, The World's End. The World's End. Yeah, that's one reason why I didn't like The World's End that much. I think the kinetic editing sometimes can take away from the story, and that's just his style, which is great. It's just not something that I find particularly um, interesting. But now that you said it's a good movie, maybe I'll go check it out. Yeah. Because yeah. the premise itself, I think, is pretty interesting. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of emotion there. like the um, Yeah, and I can kind of see how he would cut the car chase scenes. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see if he kind of, like, if it meets expectations. You might expect it to be a movie that has, like, wall-to-wall car chases. Like, it's def- we're not talking, like, Fast and the Furious or mm-hmm. anything here. Like, I would say there's maybe... Fast and the Furious's car chases aren't even car chases anymore. <laughs> True, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I, I like I would say there's really only one major car chase in the entire movie in, in Baby Driver there, and then there's snippets of other ones. Uh, same thing with the heists. Like we never we never really see a, a full heist, so it doesn't it, the movie's not really glorifying that stuff right to the extent that it could. So it's more in the characters' heads, and the plot doesn't really get started until we see a heist 
almost come together the way that other successful ones have, and and then it starts to fall apart. And that's where the mm-hmm. that's where the most of the tension goes, and and where we see the 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 characters are kind of splintering and things. That's good that you mentioned fall apart because I feel like the dark universe is falling apart before it's even gotten started. Oh, epic segue! <laughs> did you see the mummy? I did not. No, I couldn't. You did I couldn't not? bring okay. myself to do it. I was like, I why not? Like, why why were you not interested in it? I don't know. Part of it was I was catching up on some programming here at the the TIFF Lightbox, so like. I was I was already seeing too many screenings in a week, <laughs> shutting myself off from society. <laughs> no uh, such thing. So the no part of it thing. was that, and I don't know. I just I didn't. I really wasn't in the mood for like Mission Impossible rehashed with Universal monsters. Like the the combo just didn't didn't right, seem attractive okay. to me. And plus that combined with like the bad press, like it it kind of got to a a Transformers level where I'm like I can't even have fun hating this. But, but I don't know, what was your take? Like, did, was there anything redeemable about it? Because the critical consensus made it sound like it was just garbage. <laughs> so, like, the thing with Rotten Tomatoes sometimes is, like, everyone references. when, But when it's, like, 15% or something low like that, or whatever the mummy was, like, 25 23%, whatever it was, it just means that only 23% of the critics liked it. It doesn't mean tw- only 23% of the movie is watchable. Yeah. Which is what I think happened to The Mummy, where the advanced buzz wasn't very good, and Tom Cruise kind of is a kind of a divisive celebrity, and so people just weren't interested. My biggest problem with The Mummy was that it was boring as hell. I fell asleep in that movie. And you actually I did. Never like, you kind of went like, huh. Yeah, I kind of like dozed off for like I think a good five ten minutes. But was that was the were you bored because it was too much of like a mishmash of other stuff, or was there? That's the problem. Like the execution is okay. Tom Cruise, I think, I think in my mind, especially in the Mummy, did a good job, and he's still to me a legit action movie star, even though he looks a little older. <laughs> I don't. I can't really fault one thing with the movie. It's just that everything kind of falls flat. The characters are kind of flat. The plot is too convenient. The villains are not very interesting. It's obviously trying to lay the groundwork for an entire universe that I already don't care about. As a fan of the original Mummy with Brendan Fraser, which was like back in 99, it pales completely in comparison because the Mummy in this, Tom Cruise's Mummy, is so generic. There's nothing new, nothing exciting about it. And like you said, the, the moment you start watching it, you're... You kind of wish you were watching another action adventure instead. You're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, like Tom Cruise, I, I, he feels like he's playing Ethan Hunt again. I'd really prefer to be watching Ethan Hunt. A little bit. A little bit. Part Indiana Jones, part Ethan Hunt, part, you know, Jack Creature kind of thing. The other thing, too, is Russell Crowe's in it, <laughs> and he played a much bigger role than I thought, and he just was not good. Yeah, because they're trying to set him up as, like, the connective tissue for the other ones, right? Right. He He's like Dr. Jekyll. I think he serves the purpose of just spewing exposition. Oh, yeah. I hate that so much. <laughs> I know. There... That actually, that's another thing. Just exposition throughout. Yeah. So you had a narration in the beginning. You had to go back and do the Egypt story, and that's a lot of narration. I think Sophia Butella was hugely underused because she didn't get many lines. All she does is kind of like show up once in a while, be creepy, you know, scream a bit, scream a bit. Yeah, doesn't really say a heck of a lot. Kind of give you an evil look here and there, which was too bad. I just 
because the villain in the original in the Brendan Fraser mummy was actually kind of hilarious and kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Jake Johnson, who kind of plays his sidekick, had like a weird subplot where he kind of like comes back as a as a zombie type person. Uh. Um, I didn't really get that. Um, I didn't think he was very good at comic relief, actually. And it was directed by Alex Kurtzman, who. I believe was one of the many writers on Transformers. Yes, yeah. And you can, and that Transformers um, tone and aesthetic is kind of transferred in the Mummy, where everything's pretty dark and gloomy, except with just like flashes of light here and there and explosions and everything. Oh, yeah. So visually, I didn't find it too appealing. There's a little plot twist at the end in regards to Tom Cruise's character that I just thought was completely out of place. Oh didn't make any sense at all at all to me other than just to build this dark universe oh yeah and they and the movie ends on a cliffhanger obviously because like it ends on you know the our merry old heroes and their band of merry men kind of going on uh, another adventure of some kind you know do we actually see on-screen moments from the other announced members of the dark universe like Javier Bardem or uh Johnny no, Depp? but Russell Crowe's in there no no Bardem or no Depp Okay. Um, Doctor Jekyll is definitely in there. Does he have like a hideout moment, like a like a Hulk out moment where he transforms? He does. Okay. He does. And so he kind of plays like just this generic person who's really interested in like ancient artifacts and whatnot, and does experiments and whatnot, does something to himself. You know, pretty cliche kind of my strength is my weakness type villain. Right. So it does this. Is this one of those movies that you know in its long expositional bits that it tries to coming up with like a an alternate history of the world where it says like oh that thing that nobody can explain that conspiracy theory that was actually us it does an alternate like oh we were secretly involved in everything that uh, every part of history th- type of situation yeah it's just very cliche there's nothing interesting about it which is why that I concept asleep. is like i feel it's really overused yeah i yeah i really don't know i really don't know and we talked about this in a, in an earlier episode i think like the uh, between what what the pro critics were saying to uh, to what what you noticed when you saw it will it actually will the these other movies with Bardem and Depp and uh, and Crow actually come to pass I don't know I guess it depends how much Universal wants this to happen like whether they want to risk another another big uh, expenditure to see if it'll take on the second time round and after the movie too I thought the audience was kind of lukewarm like there wasn't any applause there wasn't really any real talk people just kind of shuffled out of the theater and that was it um which to me is never a good sign yeah you want to at least hear some yeah exactly. some sort of reaction partway through the movie or or anything were there any laugh lines like did did the audience actually respond to, to any of that stuff i didn't find that there were many laugh lines if they were they didn't really land quite a few cheap jump scares Oh. Which I did not appreciate and did not feel really added anything to the story. Right. Because it's cheap, you know? It's not cheaply filmed. It's not cheaply done. It's just a movie that you completely forget about right after you walk out of the theater. Yeah. Yeah. That that pretty much lines up with, uh, with what I was hearing. Yeah. And it's just, it's so unfortunate. But, I mean, a good thing. I'm happy that the original is so much better because the original is still good, mm. even with the yeah. dated CGI. 
But I mean, I would love nothing more than cinematic universes to collapse on themselves and implode. <laughs> I think it'd be hilarious. I think I've just kind of had enough of movies connecting with each other. Yeah, yeah. And well, before we started the show today, like we were we were tossing around that this like super sketchy rumor about like apparently the Bond universe is is going to be exploring the idea of a cinematic universe, and it's it, like this is this is yeah, super hazy so... at this point. Like oh, it's, it's pretty much based on a tweet from a guy who talked to a guy who heard that the Broccoli's, who have been the, the longtime executive producers of the Bond franchise, they're interested in cinematic universes. That's that's pretty much the extent of it. I'm sure the idea has been brought up before because, hey, it's another way to make money. I just really oh, yeah, hope sure. that they don't do it. <laughs> pretty soon enough, you're going to have like cinematic universes for just about everything. You know, Back to the Future cinematic universe. Yeah, what 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 did uh, George McFly do while uh, Marty was away that day? Let's let's take yeah. a look in a spin-off film. Exactly. What about Marty McFly's brother who ended up in jail in the one timeline, you know? Or was it his uncle? I think it was his uncle that ended up in jail in one of the timelines. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Although I know it'd be pretty funny to see a Biff movie, especially especially like after like in the intervening bits when Biff was building his uh, his weird Donald Trumpian dark <laughs> universe uh, dystopia thing. I never uh, put Biff and Trump together, but no, yeah, that's not my. I can't something. take credit. I can't take credit for that. Somebody else pointed that out. But yeah, oh, really? uh, <laughs> that's yeah. a funny comparison. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, like you, you look at any any uh, well loved movie, and if you think hard enough, you can probably sketch out some ideas for how it would be a cinematic universe. But I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's I'm tired of it. Everyone's tired of it. Like I told you, the superhero fatigue thing is like it's real. Just like yeah. when I had the J log fatigue before everyone else, it's real. I think for for savvy moviegoers like us, you know, we're more attentive to this kind of thing, so we're actually picking up on on it, and we can see what the industry is doing. You know, it's being very mercenary. It's it's always been like that. Yeah, it, it's you know, it, it's that classic assembly line approach to to making movies that 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 anyone who really loves movies really hates. But the question is always. How well does that translate to the average person who's just going to the the multiplex uh, who doesn't really track that kind of stuff? Like, are they even aware of it? Uh, but yeah, that uh, I think that about does it for this episode. Uh, head on over to kinetoscope.ca. We'll have a full review of Baby Driver up there in the next couple of days, as well as some coverage of Spider-Man Homecoming once that rolls out in theaters. But my name is Robert Snow from Toronto. And I'm Jason Chen from Vancouver. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys soon.